The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Welcome to a special post-upfronts edition of TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as usual by my partner in banter, the amazing, the talented, the brilliant chief TV critic, Dan Feinberg. Hello, Dan. What up, Leslie? How you feeling? How, how awake are you at this exact moment? Well, it's midday Thursday right now. I'm on my fourth Red Bull. They're starting to wear off and lose their power, and I have no concept of what's happening in the, the world outside of what's going on at the broadcast networks. But I do think the Dodgers are still better than the Red Sox, right? I'm not going to rise to the bait there, but I am going to note that when Leslie refers to her fourth Red Bull, she's referring to her fourth Red Bull in a freaking week. I mean, come on. We have listeners out there who are probably on their fourth Red Bulls of the day. So yeah, it's a problem. And I try to stay away from them. But upfronts week, all bets are off. Speaking of upfronts, we made it through the presentations week. This week, the big themes were stability, stability, stability. And that was just CBS. And ABC and NBC. But I digress. Also big, the expansive reach of these some of these big media behemoths. And of course, streaming plans for many of them. Well, with so much going on this week alone, let's dive right into our special TV's Top 5 Upfronts wrap-up. Number 1. First up, let's go back to Disney for a second and break down that massive presentation and the Hulu news that preceded it. On Tuesday, Disney announced that it has assumed full control of Hulu in a deal with Comcast. As part of the pact, Comcast can now require Disney to buy parent NBC Universal's interest in the streamer within five years. What that means is that Hulu has signed a new five-year deal with them for originals and its library content. And NBC has the right to also stream its programming that it licenses to Hulu, the, aka the shows that you watch the morning after when you don't watch them on linear networks, to put that also on its upcoming streaming platform. So it's a little confusing, but make no mistake, it's a really, really big and important deal. Yeah, I I think that we're sort of in the process of seeing Hulu kind of shifting from what it was to what it's going to be. And this is sort of the the lifeboat that will allow it to make that transition between two points. And we we knew this was coming. We've known this was coming to some degree for a while and I think the real surprise is that it happens so quickly but you know why (laughs) why wait around because every minute you wait someone else is going to say something about their streaming platform or whatever it is that they're doing so you might as well get out ahead make sure everyone knows what the what the future of Hulu is what the future of other network content on an ABC owned Hulu is I I think this was probably good timing and it was the best timing literally the announcement came hours before Disney's big upfront presentation which this year featured all of their new toys all the shiny new things like FX and National Geographic and the TV studio but look this is a game changer we saw John Landgraf come out on the upfront stage and talk to reporters about the same thing earlier in the day when he said the FX content is the destination for that stuff is is Hulu. And it what it really does is it, it gives Disney two different streaming platforms. First of all, let's just stop and think about that for a second. Disney has two 
different streaming platforms. Hulu for more more of the premium content like Handmaid's Tale, which it still kind of boggles my mind that Handmaid's Tale is now on a Disney platform. And then Disney Plus, which is going to have all things, as, as we've discussed, Star Wars and Marvel and The Simpsons, and it's very family focused. So, I mean, it's it's a great delineator between the two, but it's, it's definitely something that, that got all of us talking about it. Uh, the number of different things that I have a difficult time dealing with the fact that there are now under the Disney umbrella is rather remarkable because they ran a long slideshow before the Disney TV upfront and sort of seeing things like it's always sunny in Philadelphia with a Disney logo underneath it is a, a strange thing to get accustomed to seeing John Landgraf coming out as you know John Landgraf he's the freaking mayor of TV we we talk about him all the time and seeing him now kind of looking almost like a little cog within a gigantic Disney wheeler machine uh when he continues to be the mayor of TV it's it's a new look and it does require getting used to <laughs> yeah absolutely and I mean you know look on on the studio side we've seen the biggest change this year you know every year I, I tally up how the individual studios behind all the this content how they perform and 20th TV and ABC Studios would have finished something like third and fourth. But when you combine them into the giant Disney TV studios, which is what's happening this season, they finish first. And I think that's, the, to me, the, the biggest sign of the landscape, of how the landscape is shifting in this, in this era where ownership means everything and everyone has to size up to be able to kind of get through and compete. And obviously... Disney and ABC did not have the only streaming platforms that people were talking about during Upfronts. Everybody wanted to talk about it, right down to the CW, which wanted to boast that they were doing, you know, OTT and streaming stuff before anyone else thought it was cool. Yeah, Pedowitz <laughs> really stressed that. He had a very brief 15 minutes, thank you, Mark, interview with reporters early Thursday morning, and I went and by early, I mean at 5 a.m. Pacific. And one of the big topics that he let off the call with was saying, that the CW has been doing and touting streaming performance and it's and it's free ad supported platforms for they were the first out with that stuff. So they still have CWC. They still have this uh, CWTV.com. You can watch all the stuff that the, the next morning. It's, it's all right there. And the bigger question that I have on that space is for how much longer? You know, when you've got look, the CW is owned by CBS TV studios and Warner Brothers TV. C and W. Get it? Okay. I know you did. All right. But each of those companies have has streaming services of its own. CBS All Access and Warner Media, which is coming up soon. So how much longer are all those DC shows going to be available next day or the DC Universe streaming platform? I'm very, very curious what, what happens with all that content. It is funny that we... I feel like at least... 95% of the conversations we have are, it's going to be interesting to see what happens next with yes. streaming service X, streaming service Y, streaming service Z, because it's all very much in process. And anyone who listens to any of these early podcast installments, like five years down the road, and I don't know why anyone would actually do that, but we're going to sound so stupid about so many of these things because it's, you know, it's all in progress. It's all happening as we talk and we don't know anything. Right. So future listener friends used to be on Netflix. Okay. No, I mean, that's what you're saying, right? <laughs> yes. Future. Sorry. I don't know what to tell our future listeners. They didn't get there by a time machine, so I can't tell them to go back and kill baby Hitler. So I'm out of conversation. <laughs> well, that sounds like a good moment to move on to our second topic. Speaking of the streaming wars, Warner Media's upfront presentation was all about streaming. Well, at least enough of it that we're going to turn it into a topic here. 
Number two. If you had told me last week that we would be talking about Warner Media's presentation during our post up runs wrap up, I would probably have asked if you had a fever, Dan. But that's not the case. You know, this week, Thursday, Warner Media's Kevin Riley, first of all, he inked a big new four year deal to continue serving as, as chief content officer of the upcoming streaming service. And also took on oversight of True TV, adding that to his purview alongside TBS and TNT. And one of the things that he said during his time before Madison Avenue ad buyers was he kind of clarified, you know, look, there's been a lot of speculation that that originals from TBS and TNT could wind up on the Warner Media streaming service first and then air on the basic cable networks. And he clarified that that's not going to be the case, at least for a couple of shows. The first one, which is super interesting, is Snowpiercer. Snowpiercer is basically my new designated survivor. If you listen to this podcast, you know I'm fascinated by shows with a crazy backstory. And one of the things that's happening here is that Snowpiercer was picked up and put in development back in 2015, picked up to series in January 2018. It's now had two different networks. It's moving from Turner's TNT, with the drama-focused network, to TBS, which is a comedy-focused network that Kevin Riley spent the first couple years after he joined Turner rebranding and rebuilding and repopulating with new and different content and, and canceling everything that he inherited. And now you've got a drama, this big sweeping drama moving to a comedy-focused network. It's been renewed for season two. So now you've had two showrunners, two pilot directors, two seasons, two networks, and we finally saw a trailer, and it, it, it looks promising, but it's not premiering until spring 2020. And also, each of the people who have been individually involved with the show previously have taken the opportunity to poop all over the show and their role in being squeezed out of the development process. So if you follow Josh Friedman on Twitter, he has been very vocal and very candid about the disagreements that he had. Uh, Scott Derrickson, who I believe directed the original pilot, uh, has also been very candid about what is or is not his about the series going Going forward and it's definitely dramatic to see all of what's been happening now i am totally fascinated by the move to tbs because if you asked me what kevin riley had accomplished since he came over to the turner brand what he's accomplished to me is he made tbs a destination for a certain kind of edgy somewhat esoteric comedy and He did a great job with that. If you look at the comedies that they've aired on that network, they've sort of transitioned from, and thank you for listing these things, because I'm going to steal them right now, things like Men at Work, Sullivan and Sons. I remember Ground Floor. Ground Floor was actually pretty decent. That was a kid from Pitch Perfect, right? Uh, Yes, and Briga Heelan. It was a, a decent enough show. John McGinley, it was, you know, it wasn't bad at all. And they've got all of these... Don't forget, you're forgetting Clipped. I, well, I listed it. I have no idea what it was, though. I ran for I. like one season. On I'm going to assume it involved hair. I, th- I think it was like a barbershop. Con- I don't know. We digress. Go on. But yes. So if you look, though, at the shows that they actually have aired subsequently, they're largely critically adored. I know this because you listed Search Party twice on the list, which is to say that it's not just good. It's really good. Ten hours sleep this week, Dan. <laughs> But also, I'm a big fan of Miracle Workers, which I know some people really loved. Other people didn't think it held together. I thought it was really good. It was very fun. And so the second season, it's going to be an anthology. So the second season is going to be something else. But No, we, it takes place in the medieval times. But then you also look at things like Wrecked, which I believe... Canceled. Canceled. Then let's see. What was the, what was the alien show? 
People of Earth. People of Earth, which Tim Goodman, I believe, was a fan of. Last OG, which has fans. Well, last, People of Earth was canceled. The last OG was just renewed. And then last week, they canceled Angie Tribeca, which was Kevin Riley's the first show that he picked up as part of his efforts to repopulate TBS. And that just got canceled. And that one kept sort of appearing at almost random intervals, like, oh, look, it's another season of Angie Tribeca. I feel kind of the same way about The Detour, which is a show that I genuinely enjoy. I, I don't write about it, but it is a wacky, crazy show that really does make me laugh out loud. And also, I feel as if seasons of that show just randomly appear. And it's like, oh, OK, look, season 17 of The Detour exists. Why the heck not? Um, right. But it's also <laughs> part of their problem, too, is how do you cut through in this landscape when you don't you know, especially on a returning show with a with a small audience, it's it's first of all, it's really expensive to market. And second of all, you know, there's 500 other shows. And the answer to how you cut through is that you establish a brand. And I think that TBS, without a question, had established a brand. And now they're dropping Snowpiercer into that brand just because. Yeah. And then you're seeing two comedic game shows that were on TBS. I think it was it's uh, Joker's Wild with Snoop Dogg as the host and Drop the Mic, which is kind of lip sync battle-ish. And both of those aired on TBS because they're half hour comedic unscripted shows. And those are moving to TNT. So what's really happening here that I find interesting is you're blurring the lines of what these networks are. So when you've got comedies on TNT, they just picked up the Shaquille O'Neal docu-series to air on TNT. They're doing a brand new wrestling league for TNT. And then you're seeing dramas move over to TBS, which is canceling some of its first ones out as part of its new new network reboot. And what it feels like to me is TNT is kind of turning into what Fox Broadcasting is, where it's going to have a lot of sports. They've got postseason baseball. They have the NBA. Now they have wrestling. And now they're going to have these these a lot of unscripted stuff. So it feels very new Fox to me. And then over at TBS, maybe that'll be the outlet for scripted. So and syndicated com, you know, content. I don't know. I mean, we haven't we're at the early stages of this. So definitely something to keep an eye on, which I feel like I've said like Twice already. It's very confusing. Mostly, I think of TNT as the network of NBA basketball and then charmed repeats that I accidentally find myself watching the next morning when I turn my TV off at the end of an NBA game. So that is and I can't believe that I am the only person whose relationship with TNT is basically that my relationship with true TV is I have to figure out where it is each year when the NCAA tournament comes on. Yeah. Well, the other thing that's, that TBS picked up this week that we could talk a little bit about, too, is Nassim Padrad's Chad, which sees the SNL grad play a 14-year-old boy. Dan, this sounds like another show you reviewed recently. Are you referring to Hulu's penis? <laughs> we need to decide on what our Hulu's penis sound effect is. In any case, yes, it sounds like the kind of show which, if... Hulu's penis had not been a great show that people should check out, that Chad would seem like it was kind of edgy and cool. And the funny thing about it is this is not its first home. Tell the kids about this show's journey. Yeah, and file this one under another show with a great backstory. So Kevin Riley, when he was the entertainment president over at Fox, picked up this same show to pilot back in 2016. They produced it. It didn't go they tried to shop it. it. It was redeveloped. I don't even remember what happened next, but it didn't go. didn't see the light of day. And now here we are three years later. It's picked up a series at a network that Kevin Riley oversees. In the same way that, as you recall, Robert Greenblatt brought back The Gilded Age from his time at NBC, and it's now in existence maybe at HBO. And I should note, it's unclear if this was something that Greenblatt did, because I've been told since our last podcast, when we talked about that a couple episodes ago, that 
that may have happened before he actually joined Warner Media, which, I mean, apparently there was a bidding war for it, too. So it's very interesting, nonetheless. Look, if, if we're going to put these people in charge of networks and these are people who we praise as being executives with creative talent, I am all for them having kind of favorite children that they never got to have on air that they keep trying to fight for. So if if Kevin Riley is a fan of Chad and heaven knows Nassim Petrat is extraordinarily talented. Absolutely. By all means, if he's passionate about this, it's just kind of funny to follow and trace the the story of it all. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, look, seeing Snowpiercer in 2020, it's I've, I think this is its third different premiere window. There's never been a formal premiere date, but it was supposed to premiere this summer. It was supposed to premiere late last fall. It's been pushed pushed around, moved around. I'll be excited if it ever sees the light of day. It's a show that constantly feels like it's been on the verge of getting a TCA press tour panel and then keeps not getting a TCA press tour panel. So I, too, will probably believe it exists when I see it. On the other hand, once the Deadwood movie is actually a real thing that human beings have seen, Anything could actually appear on your TV at any time. There you go. And speaking of things appearing at your on your TV at any time. That's not a good transition at all, Leslie. I didn't think it was either. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, the Red Bull's losing its effect. But let's talk about the broadcast networks and the fall schedules. Number three. Do people actually watch things on schedules anymore? Does any of it mean anything? Are we are we talking about something that has no connection to the way human beings watch TV in 20-whatever year this is? Um, yes. I'm not sure I agree with that, but I you think, give look, your I, argument I, on it. I think when it comes to scripted, I think, you know, for as a viewer, I don't think, I don't know that scheduling matters in an on-demand and streaming world. But I think for the broadcast networks, it definitely does when you're looking at building a, a cohesive schedule that's that is appealing for ad buyers or when you're using a big show to help launch a new one. That that stuff definitely matters. But I think, you know, look, let's now look at some of the big time slot battles. Uh, let's talk about this really quickly. For me, the one that I was most surprised by was seeing Chuck Lorre's new comedy on CBS called Bob Hart's Abishola starring Billy Gardell of Mike and Molly. I fully expected that to go to Thursdays with young Sheldon moving to eight to replace Big Bang and keeping that like three show Chuck Lorre night of programming intact. And it didn't. CBS scheduled it for Mondays after the neighborhood. And instead, Thursdays is uh, young Sheldon at eight. Bob, I thought would be at 830 and mom at nine. And that didn't happen. I think it comes down to kind of the different ways that networks are approaching the idea of creating scheduling flow. So on one hand, you would go Bob Hart's Abishola makes sense going between Sheldon and mom because it's Chuck Lorre. And so there's a common sensibility and blah, blah, blah. Whereas the CBS executives would go, OK, yes, that's true. But on the other hand, it's a multi-cam comedy and the Monday block has the multi-cam comedies, yeah. whereas on Thursday you get to have Young Sheldon, a single, single cam, cam, and also a fairly massive hit, and then you can actually use that to launch the unicorn, which does not seem immediately topically companionable, but it is a single cam comedy, and so that is the transition that they want to make. And I don't know if they're necessarily wrong about that. It's just you, you sort of latch on to one version of what creates flow, and that's what you stick with, for better or for worse. I don't know, for example, that the neighborhood or that has any sort of flow whatsoever into anything, and I'm not really convinced it's actually a hit show, whereas I'm fairly convinced that Young Sheldon is a hit show, and so we'll see. But even then, because Young Sheldon 
has never really had to fend for itself extendedly, it could suddenly fall off a cliff next year without Big Bang Theory or else all of the Big Bang Theory fans could be turning to it as their weekly dose of that world. So yeah, I'll admit I have not been keeping up with young Sheldon since I think very early in season one. But as you know, we're recording this, the Big Bang Theory season finale, sorry, the series finale airs tonight. And I've already kind of started thinking like you've kind of convinced me actually that that young Sheldon's worth checking out. And as a Big Bang fan, maybe I will feel that void next season with, and I'll fill it with young Sheldon. I don't know. I continue to tell people that I think the young Sheldon is a good show and is actually significantly more generous to its characters than Big Bang Theory is. Big Bang Theory, one of the problems that many people had with it in the beginning and that I still have fitfully is that it it kind of has its characters donning nerd face and mocking them at times. And the line between loving the characters and making fun of them has often been blurry. I think that Young Sheldon actually does a much better job of having true empathy for its Texas characters sometimes of conservative roots, religious roots, etc. in the 1980s, I think it often does a very good job of trying to understand other points of view than Big Bang Theory really ever has. So I recommend it. I don't think it's like mandatory viewing, but I find it perfectly appealing comfort viewing. Well, Young Sheldon is but one of the big swings this fall on the schedule. The other for me is The Masked Singer airing not once, but twice next season. So you got it once in the fall and then a second time in mid-season where it launched successfully last year. And then, you know, when, as we're talking about time slot battles, there's a big comedy showdown on Thursdays at 8.30 between NBC and CBS, both networks who are making a big push to find a big new comedy. And you've got NBC with Perfect Harmony opposite The Unicorn on CBS, both of which, at least to me, look promising. I think that's one of those situations where, yes, it looks promising. Probably NBC's version of what is a success on Thursday night is distinctly different from what CBS's version. Definitely. And so, you know, if Perfect Harmony holds on to the superstar audience, NBC's like, woohoo. Whereas if Unicorn does the exact same audience, CBS is like, oh, dear Lord, apparently Walton Goggins is not a comedy star. And so everyone's got their own different standards yeah. um, and then again there's another one at, at 9 30 where you've got sunnyside on nbc which is the cal penn comedy from mike Schur, and carol's second act on cbs starring patricia eaton and that one right there seems like a much more logical piece of of scheduling where you ha where you go from mom which is a comedy with dramatic beats to carol's second act which is also a female driven comedy which appears that it will have some quote-unquote heart whatever that exactly means uh and it has patricia heaton who has a an audience who who loves her and has followed her from show to show so that seems interesting uh what do you make of cb uh, not cbs of abc deciding to use mixed dish the spinoff from blackish as the lead-in to blackish i think that's one of the amusing schedule of things this year i thought the same thing and then i kind of took a step back and realized that mixed I, I, which is a title apparently I can't even say. Hey, it was part of the joke on mixed dish. Uh, part mixed of Jimmy dish, Kimmel's joke is that I can't do it. You can't do it five times. No. But why would you want to? Um, but part of the of the logic in that is the prequel. It's it's literally a prequel. So you've, you're you're basically setting it up in order. So you're going to watch Young Rainbow transition into Adult Rainbow in the next half hour. So I, I see it from that perspective. But it would be like the Goldbergs airing after Schooled, which is. School is set in the 90s and the Goldberg is set in the 80s. I think it also obviously reflects that ABC is not thinking that Blackish is a powerful lead in at this point yeah. there. You know, if it, if it had a bigger audience, they would not be doing that. Um, but also, I guess they figure in this circumstance that it could then be a lead into their 
10 p.m. drama, which doesn't make much sense. They have Emergence, the Alison Tolman drama airing after Blackish, which doesn't make all that much sense, as opposed to the much more logical pairing of Stumptown coming after single parents because Stumptown kind of looks like a drama with comedic elements. It, scheduling really is something that obviously the networks put effort into, even if sometimes when we step back and look at it, the results of all of it are kind of messy and amusing and peculiar. Yeah, and that's some, definitely something we can talk about closer to the fall season. And maybe we can bring in a uh, scheduling executive to kind of talk us through it. Uh, the other thing that I wanted to, to touch on briefly is, you know, CW is making a big swing on Sunday nights. Batwoman starring Ruby Rose opening up the night at 8 p.m. and leading into Supergirl. It's rare that you see a new show open up a night, especially on a big night like Sundays. And while we're talking about that, Dan, I want to give our listeners a disclaimer and a proud wife alert. My lovely spouse was hired as a staff writer on Batwoman. So once we talk about that here, I'm going to recuse myself from talking about the show in any sort of critical way and kind of just stick to the news just to be clear and draw a very firm line. All future conversations about Batwoman will just be me talking to myself. That's right, Dan. <laughs> yes. I, I, you know, it's, it is interesting to see the new show there leading into the established show in Supergirl. And definitely Supergirl has kind of had this strange trip to the CW where it started off on CBS, obviously. And they thought, you know, how much of that audience will it bring over to the CW? The answer was only a bit. But ultimately, with scheduling on the CW, as Mark Pedowitz would tell you, it barely matters. Yeah, it's only a, it's only a third of the equation. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's just a little piece. And so, you know, whether it airs on Sunday or Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday, people can watch it on the CW's app with commercials anytime they want. Yeah. Well, let's put a bow on upfronts and move on to our fourth topic. Let's do some big takeaways from the networks and your first knee jerk reactions to the trailers. Number four. Dan, what looks interesting to you? What looks interesting? It's hard to tell, honestly, and I don't know that I am as totally disheartened as I probably was last year after the upfronts. I think after seeing the trailers last year, I was like, OK, the networks aren't even trying this year. It feels like there are a couple of things that are trying. I wouldn't go so far as to say I'm utterly jazzed about a dozen TV shows. But for example, if you give me Katya Herber's Mike Coulter and Michael Emerson on a show from Robert and Michelle King, I'll watch that. And that's, of course, Evil on CBS airing Thursdays at 10. And the trailer for that looked like it was an amusing blend of genres and ideas. So it's kind of a supernatural horror legal comedy. Uh, you know, it didn't when they did their show about the brain bugs in Washington, that didn't work very well with audiences, but there are some people who think it was a brilliant show. I don't think it was a brilliant show, but I definitely think it was a show that was probably about six months to a year ahead of its time and could have been a success in a slightly different world. This one looks like it should be similarly difficult to categorize, but looks cool. Yeah. And then really quick, CBS is making a big effort behind that because they released the first teaser for the trailer on Sunday ahead of their upfront presentation on Wednesday. So they're really going out early on that one. So what else looks interesting? I am all for Walton Goggins as a leading man. I'm still annoyed that CBS last year didn't pick up the L.A. Confidential adaptation that he was supposed to star in. That to me seemed like it a, came close and, uh, and it almost went to CBS All Access. Almost. It seemed like a good idea. It seemed like a good piece of casting. He was going to be Jack Vincennes. It all it all made sense. I still kind of want that. But anyway, he's just such a good actor and has been so good at playing 
sometimes awful, sometimes slimy, sometimes charismatically awful and slimy. I really kind of like the idea of him playing a healthy, fairly adjusted family man, even one occasionally racked in grief. That looks interesting. You mentioned mixed dish. Anyway, mixed dish. Mixed dish. Mixed dish. I'm instructing our sound guys, are you leave having, this in. Are leave, you having a seizure? Are you okay? <laughs> leave this in as I attempt to say mixed dish, because maybe at a certain point, ABC will realize that this is yet another ABC show that they are going to kill with a bad title. Yeah, it is That's a thing that one. ABC does extraordinarily well. I thought the trailer for that looked somewhat different from what I expected it to be. I was fine with that. We mentioned Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist, I believe, in our first podcast of the week. And I think from that season in NBC, yeah. Uh, yes, with Jane Levy. I think that one looks pretty decent. So yeah, I came away with four or five shows that I can at least be curious about, which I think is probably one or two more than I did last yeah, year. I'm actually curious about the new Chuck Lorre show, Bob Hart's Abishola. I mean, I was ready for that to be a two and a half men, and I was pleasantly surprised. Yeah, I think the sensibility of that was different from what I thought it was going to be. And also, we keep referring to it as the Billy Gardell show because we don't necessarily know how yet to pronounce the leading lady's name. Uh, Fulake Oluwofoyeku, I think is her name, and I'm trying to do that in earnest, so I hope that that is a correct pronunciation because she is the leading lady on the show and we shouldn't be ignoring she, her also. So. And she came off as very charming during her time on stage at the CBS Upfront. And looks like she's going to be funny in the show. It's also got a great supporting cast. Uh, always happy to see Barry Shabaka Henley in things. So yeah, that could also be good. There's potential for stuff. I didn't see anything that made me go, oh my God, this is blowing it out of the water. This is the huge swing. This is the great idea. I don't know. Stumptown looked okay. I thought that could be decent. I like Kobe Smulders. I would have liked for something to have been like, oh my God, I can't believe that's airing on broadcast in 2019. But again, there was nothing that made me do that. What about the flip side, Dan? What's the dog of the year? And pardon me for being so cavalier about all of this stuff. I don't mean to be. I know there's a lot of people that work very hard on these shows to make them great, but coming from a critic's point of view, Dan, there's always a dog every season. Oh, and, I, and the thing is, I don't actually know. There were definitely things that made me concerned. Like, for example, I thought the trailer for Deputy on Fox had a weird fascistic tone to it that made me truly uncomfortable. And I am all for a show with Stephen Dorff as kind of an outlaw, badass cowboy lawman. But the whole premise of that appears to be he doesn't play by any rules. He plays by his own rules. And I don't know if that's really what we need on television in 2019. I feel like that is a somewhat outmoded view of policing that does not really align with <laughs> with how anyone wants to be looking at the LAPD at any point. So that one made me most uncomfortable. What about on the comedy side? What was the Jason Biggs, Maggie Lawson comedy called? Uh, anyone remember? Can anyone? Canceled after two? Uh, God, it, look. All I will say about that is that it looked like it was a comedy from a different era. That is all I will say, is that it had this very weird parents being run over by their kids and kids saying the darndest things kind of tone that felt like it was from a past age. Like it might have been nicely paired with such Fox comedy classics as Dads and I Hate My Teenage Daughter and probably Fox Does Not Want Me talking about it in that light. So yes, maybe I will not even learn what that show is called. Don't look it up, Leslie. Stop. I'm not. We're just going to refer to it as the Jason Biggs Maggie Lawson show. Yeah. And on the flip side, I'll run through some big takeaways. But, you know, we talked about it at the top of the podcast, but it's really stability is the word of the week. You know, after I crunched all the numbers, which there's a lot of math, it's not pretty. <laughs> Total volume this year came in at 36. That's exactly what last year's was when we were at a seven-year low. 
dramas and comedies were exactly the same again year over year 22 and 14 respectively three of them were animated multicams are up one single cams are even it's stability renewals also spoiler alert even 70 year over year this is the most stable i have seen the broadcast network since i've been doing these numbers since i think almost 10 years now and the bigger takeaway in terms of how stable things are is if renewals and volume being even wasn't enough canceled shows dropped from 40 last year yes there were 40 canceled shows on the broadcast networks last season this year 26 which is interesting because multiple people actually asked me on twitter if this was more carnage on significantly less which is funny i guess i don't know how it works in terms of perception i definitely felt as if there were fewer shows that i cared about that were canceled yeah this year and i don't know what to make of that you know ultimately every year there are four or five shows that i feel upset or offended got axed this year it's mostly just speechless it's not too late someone pick up speechless anyway (laughs) yeah well that brings us to our fifth and final topic as always we wrap things up with our weekly critics corner segment number five Dan, we've talked about the fall trailers. We touched on Big Bang Theory a little bit during Monday's podcast, and there will be no spoilers here. But outside of that, Dan, I haven't a clue as to what's happening outside of the Big Five's fall lineup. What do you have? What you got? Well, what I would tell people to watch this week is actually pretty simple. There are other things premiering, but the best thing anyone could watch this week is season two hypothetically the final season of Fleabag on Amazon. It is the best thing on TV this weekend. It is Phoebe Waller-Bridge's quirky relationship dramedy weird thing that she has done now two seasons of after saying that she only had one season of. The second season is so sharp and so clever and so cutting in places and so cringeworthy. It is remarkable. It is right up there with catastrophe in terms of these short run British shows that only do six half hour episodes per season. And so you can go through them in no time at all. It is wonderful. The entire cast is wonderful. Andrew Scott, who joins the cast this season, is really great. People who don't know him are going to absolutely fall in love with him. I just think that there are a lot of great things to say about that show. And it's a show that I don't know that casual viewers talk about nearly enough. So that would be the thing I would tell people to watch. Otherwise, there's that other thing on Sunday night that's having its finale. That's Barry, right? Yes, Barry. Yes, it is indeed having its finale on Sunday night. Uh, been a fine second season for Barry. Um, yes, tune we, in for Barry's finale. And we are, on... of course, also talking about <laughs> Game of Thrones. That was an awful segue. That was my fault. But look, it's a big night on HBO. It is a big night on HBO. And we will definitely be talking more about Game of Thrones next week when we can actually spoil it a little bit for you. Because at this point, we can't really spoil anything because we don't know what's coming. <sighs> Who you got for the Iron Throne at this point, Leslie? Arya Stark. Do you want that or do you believe that? I just want that. I don't know that there's anything that I need for this final season other than for it to just be better. <laughs> so have you signed the petition that no, apparently Dan. is now up to 500,000 no. asking them to remake the final season? And that season? is not, look, listen, that's a fan-driven thing. Let's not give that any credence here, okay? I mean, 
I like to make fun of things like that. It's just not the way storytelling works, people. Yeah, and I like to not make fun of those things because it feel like we give stuff credibility by talking about it. So let's just be careful. You know, look, if you want to sign a petition that has no chance of actually having any impact, more power to you. It's a pop culture phenomenon. People have different opinions on everything. That's what makes criticism so fun, I would imagine, Dan. And, you know, look, being in this position as a news editor, you have to pick and choose your spots. And also sometimes, and I hate to say this, Sometimes things are going to disappoint you. <laughs> and if the final season of Game of Thrones is disappointing you, that doesn't mean that the first seven seasons need to disappoint you any more or less than they did when you actually were watching them and loving them. And then it doesn't mean that the guy down the street at Starbucks didn't love it. That's what makes art so great. So anyway, that's it for us this week. We will be back next week with all things Game of Thrones with the series finale. Until then, be sure to check out Josh Wiggler's series regular, which this week goes deep on that massive penultimate episode of Game of Thrones. You can subscribe on all of your various podcast platforms. If you like us, please rate us. If you really like us, please write a review of us. I'd also add that if you have questions about Upfront's Week that we haven't gotten to this week, Maybe next week would be a good week to have a little listener mail. So if you want to be in touch with us, our podcast email address is TV's top five at THR.com. That's TVS, T-O-P, the number five at THR.com. Well, we've done a lot of podcasting and a lot of work this week, Leslie. So till next week. Till next week, Dan. Till next week, Dan.